We hope you enjoy listening to this podcast of St. Louis on the Air, brought to you by University College at Washington University. With undergraduate and graduate programs, part-time, evening, and online. University College at Washington University, offering world-class education within reach. Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Don Marsh. The opioid epidemic we discussed in the first segment, a segment that is still very much with us in spite of efforts to curb it. Active in that battle is the National Council on Alcoholism and Drug Abuse. And joining me in studio is Brandon Kosterison, the Missouri Hope Project Manager with the Council here in St. Louis. We're also joined by Kathy Arbini. She lost her son in 2009 to a heroin overdose. Thank you, folks, so much for being with us. Thank, Thank you. you. Let me start uh, start with you, Brandon, with regard to where we stand right now. You've, you've been listening to what uh, the lawyer was telling us a moment ago. Where are we in this area right now? So in 2017, we set new opioid overdose death records. Um, we are at least 756 through the St. Louis region, and uh, that is not complete numbers yet. Um, that puts us over 4,500 people since 2007 who have died in the St. Louis metro area from opioid overdoses. And that uh, counts for everything from Percocet and hydrocodone all the way up to heroin and fentanyl. And so fentanyl you, is the driving factor in St. Louis right now. And you count heroin as part of that Correct. as well. Because isn't it a fact that many people who are uh, hooked on opioids eventually might turn to heroin? I wouldn't say that, but I would say that most folks who use heroin got their start with prescription opioids. Two-thirds of people who use heroin and fentanyl got their start from prescription medications. But most people who do misuse prescriptions do not move over to heroin. What do you think of this lawsuit we were just talking about? You know, I think that there is definitely a space to address uh, some of the harms that have been done by the pharmaceutical manufacturers who knowingly misrepresented the risks associated with these medications um, and really worked to kick off this opioid epidemic. I think that there's some precedent from the Master Tobacco Settlement and how funds from uh, major companies like Philip Morris, et cetera, were able to be utilized to for tobacco secession. They were used for um, prevention efforts and for treatment efforts. And I think that that might be a good roadmap to look at for uh, medication or for uh, addressing these uh, manufacturers. This is a three-pronged attack with pharmaceutical manufacturers and, and, and also includes pharmacies. Uh, is that a place to, uh, to, to focus on, do you think? I think that pharmacies and uh, providers generally um, may have been misinformed about the risks of these medications. And we do know that there have been some prosecutions from DEA from pharmacies and doctors who knowingly wrote hundreds and hundreds of prescriptions for ailments that didn't exist or didn't necessitate those. I think that holding those bad actors are accountable, but what we don't want is to end up with a chilling effect where people who actually need these medications are unable to access them and then they end up going to the streets. We don't want the pendulum to swing too back. Uh, too far back on the other side. Kathy, let me turn to you. And of course, you have a very personal story to tell with regard to all of this. Uh, let me just get your reaction to what you've been hearing with regard to a lawsuit to try to attack the problem. Do you have any, any thoughts about that? Um, I do agree that with the, the main thing is treatment. If they get a lawsuit and they win this lawsuit, this is all about treatment. This is all about getting these people well, awareness. I don't know that it's 
going to happen soon, but I, I, I do pray that it does happen. Brandon was right. These these people know what they're doing, these manufacturers of these drugs. I've seen doctors. We've talked at schools. I saw a young boy with his wisdom teeth out, and he got Percocet, and he got three refills for that. Now, that's just crazy. You're spending a lot of your time, apparently, in schools and other places uh, talking about this issue. Yes. I I uh, lost my son in 2009. He was only 21. And in in that day, which seems a long time ago, there was Narcan, but it wasn't for this situation that was for in the hospitals when the, the babies, they give the babies too many opiates in the operating room. Now we have made sure that all first responders carry Narcan. We want to save these kids. We want them to go to treatment. We don't want to push them on the street. We don't want them to die. We want them to live. It's it's not fair. It's, it, it's something that they did not choose. It's a disease. If this isn't too painful for you, could you could you tell us the story of what happened to your son, the kind of the, the, the timeline of that and how it started? And, of course, we know how it ended. Yes. Um, my son at around 13 or 14 started smoking marijuana, and he just started becoming very distant. I found a lot of Xanax in his coat pocket. He had turned to Xanax. Um, he was going to farm parties. That's where kids bring a bunch of different drugs. They throw them in a bowl, and they take they take what they want to. Um, his daddy died in 2007, and then he started really really acting crazy and we found out then he was on heroin and uh he went to five six treatment centers and i just thought you wrote a check put him on a plane in 30 days he came back good old boy Mm -hmm. and unfortunately that didn't work but in 2009 he was at a friend's house and we got a call from the police officer that he had died in this boy's basement and he had laid there for 17 hours before they had the nerve to call anybody. So that alone is so sad. It's, just, to, it's awful. I've, to clearly. think he died and we weren't around. But since then, I have worked with Chad Sabora and Robert Riley to get the Narcan passed in the first responders. And we've also came up with the good Sam law where it's okay to be at a party and someone overdoses, you call, the police come, they take care of the patient, they take him to the hospital, and they don't arrest everybody. What what kind of advice would you have for parents who have uh, children who may be uh, addicted, if you will, or suspect that they might be? What, what advice do you have? Get help. There's so much treatment out there get help the way we did it is we looked it up in the yellow pages for you know for addiction support and put them on a plane the next day but there's so much out there Uh, Brandon's group they're very very good at, at what they do you can call them you can call Missouri Network there are people out there that want to help your children get clean. It's it it's it's such a bad stigma. You know, they used to be called junkies and addicts and they're they're just people that are sick and they need help. Brandon, I'm sure that the story that Kathy just told us is one that you've heard before probably many, many times. Absolutely. What 
what does your organization do? How can the Cathy's of the world be helped by your organization? So there's a couple of different things that are going on. Um, in CADA, you've had our former executive director, Howard Weissman, on several mm -hmm. times. And so most of our agency is focused on prevention so that people don't develop a substance use disorder to begin with. However, um, we, are also, we also do assessments and referrals for treatment. So that way people don't have to go through the yellow pages. Instead, we have trained counselors who are able to uh, sit down with someone, see if they meet criteria for a diagnosis and need treatment. And this is from everything from heroin um, to alcohol and marijuana. Um, we have relationships with treatment providers all over the region. But the big effort right now is the MoHope Project, and that's the Missouri Opioid and Heroin Overdose uh, Prevention and Education Project. Sorry, that's a lot of letters in sure the acronym. Is, of course. And we are doing a lot of different things, um, including training and equipping first responders with naloxone. Uh, we've pa uh, partnered with St. Louis Metropolitan Police Department, and we've trained them and provided them with Narcan. Uh, we're working with uh, police organizations all across the state. In addition to that, we are working with treatment providers and social service organizations that work with people who are at really high risk of witnessing or experiencing an overdose and training them to prevent that overdose from happening to begin with. And we do have some free medication available at our office for uninsured people who uh, are in, who meet those risk factors. This Good Samaritan concept is really an important one, is it? So that people, if they see something happening, they can report it and not be liable themselves for anything. Absolutely. And Mo Network did a great job advocating for it. Lots of different organizations um, came together to advocate on this bill. And what it does is it allows someone to call 911 in the event of any medical emergency, including an alcohol overdose or an opioid overdose, and people aren't going to get charged or arrested with possession of controlled substance, possession of paraphernalia, probation violations, or violations of restraining orders, or a few other things. How many people are you dealing with at any given moment, would you say? In terms of clients? Um, really, I, I don't have that number off the top yeah. of my head. Sorry. But it's obviously many. <laughs> right. A, so our, on our prevention efforts, for example, last year we served 76,000 children across the mm -hmm. St. Louis metro area. Um, but our number, our uh, assessment referral numbers, I don't have handy. Sure. Okay. Kathy, let me come back to you. I know that you spend some time in Jefferson City um, lobbying for the various uh, elements of this uh, program here. What kind of response and reaction are you getting from legislators? A very good response. I, I think they're realizing that this is an epidemic. And as a parent speaking from my heart, I think they realize it just can happen to anyone. Um, they're just kind of slow in Jefferson City. So we, we just keep going. We, we, we're not going to give up. We, we just want to keep fighting for these for these people. What's the big issue right now for you that you could use some help from the legislature for? Well, we're, we're worrying about Hep C being so rampant, and we uh, want to pass a law of clean needle exchange. A lot of people don't understand, but when, when you're a heroin, when you're a substance use disorder, you need to have clean needles. We want you to stay alive before we get you in treatment. So clean needles would be wonderful if we had that so these people aren't dying of hep C. You know, it, it's kind of alarming to hear that the reaction is so slow on the government's level, particularly when you have 
uh, uh, Jeff, the, the lawyer who was in here, is at 60,000 people a year. I mean, if we had that mm-hmm. many people killed in automobile accidents, right. we'd be outraged. Exactly. Right. And a lot of that really boils down to uh, one word that's not incredibly popular, but it's prejudice. And that's that there are a lot of decision makers at all levels of government that think that people who have an opioid use disorder deserve it, and they think that it's a conscious choice it's every their day. Fault. Yeah. Yeah, it's their fault, and they deserve whatever happens to them. But when we take a moment and recognize that these people have a mental health condition that is that necessitates treatment, um, you know, we need to work to reduce that prejudice. Think about 20 years ago, all of the prejudice surrounding just going to a counselor for depression or anxiety. Mm-hmm. Right now, it's there's still some prejudice, but it's more widely accepted, and we, we need to work on that. We went through all of that, too, with crack and with cocaine. It was the same same kind of thing. Absolutely. Yeah. We have a caller who wants to get into the discussion. Let's bring in Greg. He's calling from St. Louis. Go ahead, Greg. Oh, uh, good afternoon. Yes, I was just trying to weigh in on the conversation uh, about the, the opioid uh, epidemic. Um, well, I know within the last year... Uh, I've known five people personally that uh, overdosed on heroin. And uh, I'm from St. Louis City. I'm not that old, but the, the, the heroin epidemic and the opioid epidemic in the, in the city of St. Louis has been around since I was a kid. And the problem is in the neighborhoods, you have these, a lot of those convenience stores that that sell the paraphernalia that people actually mix with the with the opioids with the uh, uh, oxycontin cough syrup and, and stuff like that and the dormant that they make and the police they don't they don't they don't they seem to not care they know these people selling this stuff. Well, that's a and big that, that's a big part of it, uh, Greg. Our our time is sort of getting away from us, but we understand the point and and that of course is another element in this problem the the corner shops and the accessibility. Yeah, I mean, we definitely need to address the the accessibility and access to everything from, you know, prescription opioids to heroin. But at the end of the day, what we need is a supply side um, reduction. If people don't, I'm sorry, a demand side reduction. If there aren't people out, th- people who have an opioid use disorder that are looking for this, it can be on every corner and nobody's buying and then nobody's overdosing. That, so that's exactly what Kathy was talking about with needing to increase access to treatment and uh, prevention as well. Right. We have a, an emailer here who uh, wrote, uh, let's make sure that we include the insurance companies in this discussion. My daughter had ankle surgery last year. The doctor made it very clear that as a practice due to the opioid crisis, they no longer prescribe opioids for pain relief. They'll prescribe something else. Great, I think, until we get to the pharmacy and find that the insurance won't cover it because it's more expensive than the opioids. Is this something you're dealing with? We're hearing a little bit about that, and uh, we also know that a lot of pharmacies have maxed out to a seven-day opioid prescription for an initial script. Actually, Missouri just passed a law, um, and it was signed into statute that does the same for an acute injury. But like I mentioned at the beginning of this segment, you know, we don't want that pendulum to swing so far to the other side that people who have legitimate need for these medications aren't able to access them. The last thing we want is for people to suffer needlessly. It really boils down to responsible prescribing and responsible filling practices on behalf of pharmacies and insurers. Kathy, you have any thoughts on that? Um, it, it, it's true. I, I think that um, insurance companies... They're, they're ruling the medical field right now. They're telling us, you know, what you can take and what you can't. We need to save lives. That's what we need to do. So if they 
they need to get on board with us and whether it you know if it's not an oxy and it's not a percocet it has to be something for that person's ankle pain we need to pay for that insurance needs to pay for that are the little girls going to get addicted and one other absolutely crucial aspect for insurers that's probably <clears throat> as important if not more important is insurers covering treatment for opioid use disorder covering medications like methadone uh, buprenorphine and vivitrol Right now, it is extremely difficult to get insurers to pay for more than 60 to 90 days worth of medication. However, these medications save lives and enable psychosocial therapies and other treatments to be more effective. How are the prescription drug monitoring programs working in our area? So it's really too early to have any hard data right now. It's been in effect maybe just over a year. Mm -hmm. um, so to my knowledge, there hasn't been an in-depth analysis, um, but we are seeing that there's some places with disturbingly high prescribing rates, uh, and there's some opportunities for intervention there, but we still don't have a statewide PDMP. Um, hopefully we will be able to have that happen next year. Well, you've got a full-time job, but there's no question about that. And, and Kathy, so do you with your advocacy work. Uh, I'm sure it keeps you very, very busy. It does. And I, 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 I hate to say that I enjoy it, but it makes other parents know that there is hope that, that substance use disorder kids do live and they do get into recovery. Do you have a final thought, uh, Brandon? Um, when, so if you know of someone who's at risk of witnessing or experiencing an opioid overdose, people can go to the mohopeproject.org, I'm sorry, it's mohopeproject, no the, .org, and they can find places like NCADA or Mo Network where they can get naloxone for free if they don't have insurance. And if they do have insurance, then they can go to the pharmacy and get naloxone or Narcan without a prescription. Okay, well... Um Thank you so much for being with us. We'll put a link to that website on our website at stlpublicradio.org. Brandon Kosterison, thank you so much of the National Council on Alcoholism and Drug Abuse for being with us, and Kathy Arbini, who lost her son tragically. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio 90.7 KWMU. Mm -hmm.